Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 556. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Feeling slightly rushed today. I just finished night shift. It's now Wednesday, and I'm recording this, and it'll go straight out. I missed yesterday's slot for the Patreon. <gasps> I want to pot with myself. So... I'll tell you what is coming up in the day show. The first or the main story, should I say, is Liz Coleman's Join. Originally appeared at Lightspeed Magazine. Then it is, by God, it is. It's the end of the month. So it is our science news with Mr. JJ Campanella. That is all coming in the day show. I do hope you will join us. So Patreon has stood rock solid. We are still on 433, which we were last week. So, come on, dig in there, man. Dig in and get some support. Let's get in the main fiction. Like I say, join by Liz Coleman. Liz Coleman has been published in Lightspeed Magazine and Beneath the Ceaseless Skies. She is a graduate of Variable Paradise. She currently lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband and too many philosophy books. The story is narrated by Jason Satland. Jason has been writing and working for, in films for over 25 years. He has extensive experience in all areas of production, including directing, writing, cinematography and editing. He is the only person ever to conduct a night shoot in the ancient city of Petra and the first person in America to use film lenses on HD camera. He wrote and directed the award-winning feature film The Record Keeper, which premiered at the Rain Dance Film Festival in London and is currently on a worldwide festival circuit. He is also the director of the Star Wars fan film The Force and the Fury. When he isn't busy directing his own projects, he enjoys teaching filmmaking workshops, shaping the filmmakers of the future. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Join by Liz Coleman. The sky blinded me when I emerged from the shuttle onto the tarmac at the SeaTac airport. It was a midnight sky, glowing orange with the pollution of the city that stretched the full length of the Salish Sea. A midnight sky, an empty bowl of clouds, but the brightness made my eyes shut just the same. A month in stasis will do that to you. Just standing took everything out of me. I'm a big guy, been in space a lot, but was also a surrogate dad of a species not my own. 
Nagorich hadn't slept that whole month. She was a pupating larva, soft and pearly. The spacers didn't know how to put her into stasis. And even if they could, she wouldn't notice the difference. All she did was absorb nourishment from my blood and dream. I shared her dreams and she shared mine. We both had a lousy trip. This was such a stupid idea. Coming home. I lowered myself to a pocketed plastic bench in the waiting area. God, it was heavy here. Nagor H. was making my back ache. Just a few weeks here, and then I could go home to a light gravity and breathable air. Just one visit to a grave, a few dinners and platitudes, and then back to the people who understood me. Oh, you've got a baby, a human woman said. Of course she was human. There were only humans here. I'd been gone way too long. It was strange, though. Nothing but humans everywhere. I felt so alone. Is the mother getting off the A-90 shuttle? My hand instinctively covered Nagorich's holster. Even though no one could see her, she was in one of the full-coverage baby carriers popular these days, slung around my torso in such a way that no one could see the join where Nagorich's proboscis entered my ribcage. Her tongue flexed against my lungs. She liked this woman, even though I didn't. Of course, Nagorich liked everyone, just as I disliked any human who paid too much attention to me. Uh, yes, I said. My throat modifications twisted the words, but hopefully my breathing mask hid that fact. This woman didn't bother with a mask. Her face was shiny with a recent skin transplant. They were popular in this age of acid rain. Her eyes were glassy with full protective contacts. Me? I wore implanted bug-eye lenses protecting my eyes from the atmosphere. Mildly poisonous to everyone nowadays, but completely poisonous to traitorous me. At least I wouldn't look too out of place. Thankfully, the man she waited arrived and she went away. If my mom left the house, assuming it was the same house, when I called, she'd arrive in an hour. An hour to wait and readjust to Earth. I rubbed Nagorage's holster. When I was a kid, I told her, my grandpa would meet us at the airport when we visited. It's a nice feeling. She twitched, happy to understand this human emotion. But my own family nostalgia was activating her own. Mama Dinah, Papa Dinah? Warm folds of criteria skin, shiny pink, sucky nodes, three-voiced song around a warm white borehole. Your mom and dad are up there. I pointed to the east, where I was pretty sure Mars was about to rise somewhere beyond the hard orange midnight. Were they working on their individual borehole into Phobos right now? Out there was one huge hollow fong generation ship attached to Mars's largest moon, slowly extracting the minerals. I already longed for it. You could sit beneath the observation bubble capping Stickney Crater and watch the sunset behind the frigid elbow pad of Mars's ice cap. Dinah Lay, Nagorich's mama, would join me, holding my hand in that human gesture I taught her. Poor Lay, so beautiful and fertile that she had three babes instead of two. Of course, I offered to nourish the extra one. Not many humans could say they dated an alien couple. I'm certain none could say that they knew what it was like to be a surrogate parent to an alien. I was making my own tribe. Not quite human, not quite foang. I'd raise Nagorich in our own little culture, and Nagorich would pass that on to her children and beyond. 
I'd play her human music, teach her human games. I'd show her how to etch images into her carapace like humans tattooed their skin. I'd show her the painful joys of suspensions. On Phobos, gravity was so light that it wasn't even a real suspension. The chains and hooks pierced your chest and anchored you while you spun around the planet of your own. Derek! Mom ran towards me with arms outspread, long black corset jackets swinging, flamboyant as always. Her breathing mask was printed with Mexican-style roses that matched the day of the dead skulls painted on her scarf. Right away, Nagorich really liked my mom. Too bad they'd never get to meet each other. Dinah Lay would get along with mom, too. I could imagine Dinah Lay giving mom holographic ribbons that she could braid through her hair while they drank Chardonnay. Dinah Lay loved earth wine. Unlike most of the Fong, she was curious about humans, and she always made me feel smart and useful. But though Mom could be friends with an alien and might even accept that I'd married one, she couldn't accept that I'd married two and was running around with their surplus child soaking nutrients from my bloodstream. She definitely couldn't accept that I'd had my body altered to breathe the Fong's methane-heavy atmosphere and my throat to better speak their language. Black cats and maple leaves skirted my mind. Nogorates trying to pull me into happy memories, away from the stress I felt right now. She liked my memories of playing in my childhood neighbor's yard, but now it was distracting and painful. Derek! Every syllable accented by the landing of her high-heeled boots. Oh, God, I'm so happy! It's been a long time, I said, the... NG sound rasped on the bony additions of my throat as they rubbed together. She hugged me. Nagorich squirmed with glee. Warm, 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 warm touch. My baby missed being touched. Poor thing. Trapped in that casing, which my mom was bumping against. Oh, look at you, she said, carrying your things in a baby carrier. Have they got a surplus of them in the dark of space? Actually, mom, they do. People live and breed out there, just not as much as the company's thought. It's holding my nutrient pack and medicine dispenser. I wasn't lying. It did hold a nutrient pack, just a small one under Nagorich's tail. I wasn't going to lie. No one would suspect the truth. Not from good boy Derek. She took off her mast and moved to kiss me, but pulled back. Oh, I, I shouldn't, should I? I'm so sorry for you with your immune system all shot. At least it's not so bad as you have to be in a bubble. I'll be fine, Mom. I still wasn't lying much. Nagorich twisted at my discomfort. I didn't want to teach her to lie. My immune system was vulnerable to Earth's viruses, I told her. Even on Earth, wearing the anti-pollution masks had damaged people's immune systems as they lacked exposure to even everyday stuff. I'm so glad. Glad you made it for Easter, Mom said. It's too bad you had to miss your father's funeral. You doing all right? I asked her. I couldn't see her forced smile behind her mask, but I knew it was there. Of course I am, she said. The whole family's shown up to take care of me, and I'm glad your father's finally not in pain. She squeezed my hands. Nagorich purred. I know coming back to Earth is hard in your body, she said. The pressure down here hurts you, doesn't it? Her gloved hands clutched mine. Bony knuckles dug into my palms. 
Mom hung her mask in a glass-faced curio cabinet when we got home, above the ceramic fondue pot and dented silver cups and dusty knickknacks that went ignored. The seal on the door hissed shut. Familiar noise, locking me into an old, old world. I half expected to hear my dad's Alzheimer's-induced ramblings coming from the den. Sounds I'd ran to Mars to avoid, but he was gone. Laughter in the kitchen. Happy sounds from familiar voices. Dishes clinking and plastic bags rustling. The smell of apple pie seeping through my mask. Help yourself to whatever's in the kitchen, Mother said. Laura made apple pie and spaghetti for dinner, and the leftovers are already in the fridge. But you know you can help yourself. I can't eat it, I said, but thank you. Oh, that's right. I'm so sorry. I don't regret my choice, Mom. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Nagorich joined me in memories of Christmas with my cousins, sitting around the old glass table, Aunt Laura's apple pie at our elbow, chins in our hands as we studied a 1,000-piece puzzle. I'd have to bring a jigsaw puzzle back with me, though I wished Leigh and Kira would be here to do them with my family. I wish they could all meet each other. "'Who's all here?' I asked. "'Just Lyra and the boys so far. Teresa and the others are arriving in the morning.' My cousin Barack entered the kitchen. He slammed a bottle of green apple aid on the table and pierced its top. Green tendrils drifted inside the clear glass. "'Hey, Derek,' he said, holding out the bottle. "'Want one? There's a whole case in the garage.' It was good stuff, full of memories of past picnics in the park. Slamming it and watching the bottom compartment crack and release a stream of green flavor was the fun part. It was Father's favorite. The drink itself was syrupy and a little too tart for me, but I always drank it so I could slam it. Barack was about ten years younger than me. I'd shown him how to make the bottles work back when he was just a kid. Now, according to Mom's letters, he was studying astrology at UW. Following in my footsteps, it appeared... I shook my own head as I sat down. I shoved a flimsy woven placemat to the side and rested my elbows on the old, blonde maple surface. It desperately needed resurfacing. Maybe I'd volunteer for the task while I was here. Space travel damaged Derek's digestive system, said Mom. He can only eat his specially processed rations. Space does that to you? Barack said. Not everyone, I said. However... They're working with the Fang to develop deep cellular modifications to cut down on that sort of thing. It would also help us survive in lower pressures and temperatures. Sounds like it's also a nice way to lose your humanity, Barack said. You thinking of getting a job out there when you're done at UW? I changed the subject. If he was, if he was someone I could mentor and befriend, someone I could introduce to my new family, he shrugged. I don't know. I mean, actually seeing the other planets. But there's so many aliens out there, and there's just getting to be more and more. I hear they breed like rabbits. They only have two children per couple. Their population's more stable than ours. Then why do they bother colonizing our system? Aunt Laura asked. She stood in the doorway, holding aside plastic beaded curtain with her hip. They're on their way to the galaxy's center. I closed my eyes. We're just a stop on the way. The fountains of God. Nagorich twitched and slapped my lungs as they took extra deep breaths. Scarred images painted by Mama Dia of the twin scarred jets. Blue fire pouring from the void while the filth of the universe awaited renewal in the vast accretion disk. My skin itched. 
remnants of the experiments they were doing on me to stop the destructive effects of x-rays on my frail human flesh. They pitted us so much that we weren't able to withstand the burning touch of God. Parts of my soul would be there, passed through Nagorich and her children's children, when the Foang, millennia from now, arrived at the most holy site in the galaxy's core. That distant imprint would carry the memories of my mom, Barak, of my family, of Earth itself, long after we destroyed ourselves or evolved away. I'd join in the collective ecstasy of the Foang as they threw themselves into the heart of God to be set free and disseminated by the twin fountains. They're leaving us. They're leaving in less than a hundred years, I said, when they've turned Phobos and Deimos into new colony ships and gathered what knowledge they can from us and our system. They're not here to conquer us. No one said they were, Mom patted my shoulder, then jerked back as if she wasn't sure she should have. Nagorich purred and laughed away at the echoes of Mother's dismay. It's all right, Mother, I said. You can touch me. I just can't eat or breathe here. I turned to Barak. If you're bothered by the foang, don't worry, you'll probably never see one, even on Mars. There's loads of opportunities, though, if you want to work with them directly. My friends, the foang I worked with, they took me out to the settlement on Titan to scout some deposits. They're really nice and generous. Dinah Lay, she's the foang I work with the most. She holds monthly wine parties for the human crew out on Phobos. They project everyone's avatar onto the opposite room so we can all party together while breathing the right kind of air. You'd really like her, Mom. Nagorich teetered in my bloodstream. I really, really wished I could knock back a green apple or even a cold soda. Mom would have sparkling apple cider in the fridge since it was Easter. Likely, it was left from Father's funeral. Most people treated it like a celebratory drink, and though my father's death wasn't a thing to celebrate, expected and merciful end though it was, the family getting together was always an event. Alien hormones skittered through my veins. I giggled and asked Barack about his studies. Keep looking outside myself. More things for Nagorich to learn about my family. He was specializing in Venus, but my talk of asteroids was still like candy to him. His eyes went wide when I told him how the Foang secreted a substance that let them integrate X-ray-proof minerals while they snuggled in stony cribs. Cold stone and sticky acid. A bony force to change. Nagorich dreaded her next step of development, ripped from me to be inserted with her sisters into a nook in the wall of Stickney Crater. But she'd crawl from it in hole and groan. She'd blink her sapphire-domed eyes at the red ceiling that was Mars, where humans lived their fragile lives in sapphire domes of their own. She wanted to be there, living the same kind of life I used to live. She wanted me to stay with my family as long as possible so she could understand them and absorb a life she could never live. This was the way of the Foang. They soaked up wisdom everywhere they went, though usually not so directly. Their long memories spoke of attempts to use other species as I was allowing myself to be used. The Foang's body chemistry was adaptable for this very reason. But without the love I felt, their larvae withered away and took their hosts with them. My existence encouraged the Foang. They spoke of taking in more humans, of actively recruiting among the Martian colony domes. I warned that I was an oddity, 
and their attempts at seduction might frighten humanity. This is the way of the Foang. This is why they rejoined in their divine mission, which kept them moving ever onward. At least going to Mars means you finally got rid of those hideous piercings, Mother said. Will the holes close up on their own? I frowned and rubbed the row of five holes in my eyebrow. I hadn't got rid of them, just taken them out for the visit, because otherwise everyone would give me a hard time about it. I still had all my tattoos, too, though my long sleeves hid them. I'd only added to them on Mars. They were my early attempts at shaping my own identity. Quietly, I clicked the bones in my throat and ignored my mom. We visited the mausoleum after Easter Mass, which Nagorich adored. She loved the smells and the music and the pressure of being crammed elbow to elbow in the pews. She liked the mausoleum, too. It was cold and stony, similar to the halls of Phobos, but different. There was no marble and bronze on Phobos. She was getting the impression that this is where humans stored their memories. My father's tomb was covered in old CDs from his collection. The labels were turned inward, revealing only a surface of rainbow mirrors. I ran my fingers over their scratched surfaces. I used to dance all alone to those CDs when I was just a kid, keeping to myself in the basement. I'd never been very good at making friends. Sometimes Dad would hear and come down to teach me about the music. So many things I worried about giving to Nagorage. My nail-biting, my tendency to interrupt my self-hatred at abandoning my own species. But this moment, right now, the echoes of grief and relief at my father's hard death at the hands of cancer on the heels of early-onset Alzheimer's was exactly what I wanted the Foang to preserve for me and my species. Maybe I wasn't betraying my species at all, giving them a way to be remembered. Most of my family had been at the funeral, but even so... Someone passed around a flask of whiskey and started an impromptu memorial. Mother touched my wrist. She wore the same coat I saw when she picked me up, her mask grinning skulls around her neck. After fumbling in her pocket, she pulled out some wrinkled index cards. Derek, she said, I wanted to bring you here to read you something. I suppose I should just say it, but there was so much. I didn't want to forget. She flipped through the cards. I'm sorry, she said. I, I just wrote down so much. I didn't know I didn't know what would be the best to speak of. He did so much. Aunt Laura handed her the whiskey, and she took a swig before talking. Your father was so proud of you, she said. I told him it was horrible you leaving us to return only rarely, but he changed my mind. It took a long time, but after years of him watching the feeds going into the backyard every night and pointing to the sky, to the spot where, even though he couldn't see you, he knew you were living a life that none of us would get to lead. That knowledge seemed to cut through his Alzheimer's. His joy infected me, and even though I still wish you'd call more, I understand why you can't, and I'm proud of you too. That's the sort of amazing man my husband was, that he could change even a bitter, overprotective mother like me. Nagorich's tongue was sharp against my lungs. This was all about my father, of course, not me, but I couldn't stop thinking about how they couldn't know. They wouldn't want to know. 
I could only think about myself, even though Nagorich's secretions ordered me to dwell on everyone here except me. And for the first time, I resented her. Mother crumpled the little paper and rubbed her eyes. Let's go have some pie, she said. When we got home and the door seals hissed shut and everyone's masks but mine were tucked away in safe corners, over a dozen people related to me by blood and love settled in for sparkling cider and reminiscing. I sat in a corner where Nagorich and I could watch. Didn't feel much like talking right now, and everyone knew me well enough to know not to try. However, I'd changed over my years in space. I'd always been aloof. How else could I survive years separated from everyone I loved? Even on Phobos, looking down on the sparkling lights of the colonies, so far down. Several children charged around the house in a game of hide-and-seek, giggling and screeching as they ran. My sister Teresa curled up on the couch, her husband holding her hand. Their two oldest, girls aged ten and seven, set up a game of checkers on the table. How well did they know their grandfather? Was he a tragic, decaying figure in the corners of their memory, or had they actually been able to interact with him? He might have been the one to teach them checkers, like he taught me. Nagorich wondered about checkers. She liked the image of red and black discs hopping across a colorful board, the feeling of ridged plastic edges on young fingertips. I sat beside the fireplace in an army of family photos. A half-dozen old-fashioned prints stood guard over the mantel beside a half-dozen digital frames, slowly rotating between images. One set was from the funeral. My father's casket was engraved with the words of John Lennon and, I was told, a single verse of the Bible. The thin, laser-carved words nearest the camera were from I am the walrus. What was the Bible verse? Father's tendency towards a quiet faith betrayed nothing, and Mother refused to tell me. Her little revenge for my missing the funeral, I supposed. Most of the other pictures were of the grandkids and shots of Mom waving before world landmarks. I picked each one up and internally told Nagoriach what it was. A shot of my dad holding a child made me freeze the rotation. He was young and blonde, with the spiky, messy hair that was popular back then. His walrus tattoo looked fresh and sharp on his forearm. I tapped for the caption. The baby was me. I'd probably seen that picture before, but never paid attention to it, since I wasn't interested in myself when I was just another generic baby. But this time, I wasn't interested in my young self, though I told Nagorich that this was me back when I was like her. She mostly understood that humans and foeing were different things and lived in different ways, but she didn't know the specifics, even if she could grasp their importance. She wanted to know where my proboscis was and why I didn't have a twin somewhere. Human babies were parasites of a different sort, I told her. I started to feel the burn within my blood that meant time for a new nutrient pack. They were in my bag, lazily draped over my childhood dresser upstairs. Skirting the edge of the kitchen, I headed for the back hallway, carefully avoiding Aunt Lyra's elbows, which jabbed in and out while she stirred a big bowl of vanilla pudding. A bowl of chopped strawberries, grown as always by Mom in the sealed rooftop greenhouse, awaited addition to the pudding. The pantry door slammed open, right into my face. I jerked back a step. Oh, Derek, are you all right? Someone asked. 
My mask and eye implants protected my face. I was just a little shaken. One of my nieces stuck her head around the door, looking wide-eyed and mortified. And then I tried to take a breath, and my throat burned. A broken filter hissed. If I could hold my breath, would Nagoriach be able to filter my blood long enough to grab a fresh filter? I wouldn't find out. After only a few steps, I collapsed with my chest on fire. Oh my God! Aunt Lyra knelt beside me. She was shouting for others. So many faces staring. Nagorich screamed her chemical scream into my blood. Teresa asking if I was all right. The bones in my throat rasped as I answered. I can't hear you, she said, tearing off my mask. Cold, poisonous air tickled the sweat edging my face. No! My bag! Bring my bag! Barak darted off. I gasped like a dying fish, my throat bones digging into soft, desperate flesh. The smell of turkey and apple pie and mother's patchouli incense smothered me. Nagorich's chemicals kept me going for the eternity I spent on my back, my head on my sister's lap. Barak appeared with my bag, and in moments I found my new filter. My heartbeat slowed as the familiar methane-tinted scent filled my sinuses. Instantly, Nagorich detected that all was well and started pumping calm into my veins. My sister's fingers still checked my pulse when I started twitching at the emotional soup my baby was forcing upon me. I fought against her and the hasty change she brought. "'What's wrong with you?' Teresa asked. My brain was being pulled in two different directions at once. "'Don't ever have children,' I muttered. "'They mess with your head.' Teresa laughed and gently shook my head between her hands. I've already had kids, silly. A bad immune system isn't going to hurt you like that just did, Mother said. She stood behind Barack, clutching his shoulder. He stared at me like I was an alien. I had a story in place, in case of this. A serious accident in the borehole. Major reconstructive surgery on my throat, hence the scars, necessitated a special oxygen concentrator. I hadn't wanted to worry them. Hence, the silence. I'm becoming an alien, I said. I'm sorry. What are you talking about, Teresa said. An alien? She touched my throat scars and felt the lumps that were harder than my Adam's apple should be. I can still be here, I said. I, I can still be human. I just wanted to be closer to the others who I love, too. I told them about the modifications. I told them about Nagorage. That thing's going to kill you, isn't it? said Barak, shoving me hard enough that I almost rolled out of Teresa's lap. That's why you finally came home, for one last goodbye before you killed yourself for the sake of the freakiest body mod you could think of? No, I raised myself on my elbows. She won't kill me. Space life was going to shorten my life anyway. He's already dead to me, said Mother. Everyone stared at her. Why didn't I lie? You have no idea how happy I was that you came home, she said, and on Easter even. She pulled off her big cocktail ring and rubbed her eyes. When you decided to go to Mars long term, she said, I knew I'd never see you again. I thought about what I might have done to drive you away. I thought about what I might do to bring you home. I told myself I'd even do one of those awful suspensions you do, hang myself by the wrists from the kitchen lights to show you I loved you. Now it's obvious that it was your father you were running from. Well, that's understandable. She couldn't keep the bitterness from her voice. 
But that doesn't change the fact that years ago I said goodbye in my heart forever. Mom, I'm not gone. I'd never seen her like this. She looked like a wilted flower, her hand draped limply over her knee, her big onyx ring dangling from her grasp. She looked at me with empty eyes. Mom, I promise I'll call more often. I'll need to. I need your help with this. You have to know what I'm doing. I'm helping the Foang understand us. So they can conquer us, said Barak. And don't you want the one Foang who's going to know our weaknesses to love us? I said to him. Mom, I've never raised a kid. She's going to be more human than Foang in some ways, and I'm just one guy. Nagorich flicked her tongue curiously at this anxiety I was feeling towards her. Sometimes she's going to feel all alone. She's going to need a family that's bigger than just me and her parents. Even if it's just over the sky screen, you could teach her to play the piano, to paint. You could tell her all those stupid jokes Dad used to tell. You could be grandma to an alien. She laughed sharply. We should kill it right now, Barack said, before it kills you. Be quiet, said Mom. This is a living being we're talking about. Is it safe for you? Teresa asked. The question implied my physical well-being, but I knew they were all wondering if I was crazy. I shrugged. It has been so far. My life would be shortened, though. No changing that, even if they did manage to make me X-ray resistant. My family didn't need to know that. I just want you to be safe, Mother said. I want you to be happy. I told them about Dinale and Kiryu, and how they were so curious about me and generous. We'd learned a lot from each other. I didn't mention our discovery that soft human hands could stimulate in ways no foeing could. I showed them a photo of me and Nagorich, the join tastefully hidden in my rock-dusted jumpsuit. You've got a granddaughter like no one else, I said. She's right here, and she likes you a lot. Nagorich crooned at the attention. She didn't understand my underlying current of fear that someone might rip her from me and smash open her casing and throw her to the pollution-tainted ground. "'You're sure this is safe?' Mother said, staring at the image. "'They've done this to other species,' I said. "'But not ours,' said Teresa. "'I'm not afraid,' I said. "'I'm happy. "'Hey, it's not like it says anything in the Bible about not marrying aliens.' I suspect Father Walker would have a few things to say about the temple of our body, Mother said stiffly. But she slowly smiled as she looked at the photo, and then at Nagoriach's battered casing. What's her name? she asked. There you go. What a story. What a story and what a narration. Big thank you to Liz. Liz, thank you so much for letting me do that story. And Jason. Oh, man. Yes, yeah. Oh, it's just fantastic. Thank you so much. One and all. So we know what time it is now. It's science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and Porkvellian mastications, my leucocentrically potaric listeners, and welcome to this September 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this barbarically inarticulate science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. I have absolutely no introductory remarks tonight, ladies and germs, so let's just get on with the show. Okay, so... 
I have no idiot scientist of the month this month, but I read an article recently that really asked the question of whether I have a right to be singling out scientists as idiots. The article appeared in Laboratory News under the heading Science Life. It was not attributed to any particular writer, so I can only assume that it was an editorial written by the managing editor, whose name is Phil Prime. So, the story concerns the Darwin Awards and gender bias. So what exactly do I mean by that? Well, first, if you don't know what the Darwin Awards are, they are a semi-serious accolade given to recognized individuals who have supposedly contributed to human evolution by self-selecting themselves out of the gene pool. Silly as the awards themselves may be, the Darwin Award Committee are serious about it. They firmly state, quote, winners must die in such an idiotic manner that their action ensures the long-term survival of the species by selectively allowing one less idiot to survive, unquote. There have been many illustrious winners since the inception of the awards back in 1985. Uh, for example, there was an adventurous commuter who decided to hitch a ride home by attaching a shopping cart to the back of a commuter train, only to be dragged two miles to his death before the train was able to stop. Then there was the guy who shot himself in the head to show his friend he did indeed have a real functioning gun. And here's my personal favorite. The terrorist who mailed a bomb, a letter bomb, with insufficient postage, and who, on its return, unthinkingly opened up his own letter and blew himself up. Slightly cruel. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. But is there anything more then a few cheap laughs here is really the question. So here is the heart of the story. Doctors Dennis and Ben Lendrum, father and son of the Institute for Cellular Medicine, published a paper recently in the British Medical Journal in which they analyzed data from the Darwin Awards. The data they analyzed had to do with gender and risk-taking behavior. Now, based on the Darwin Awards, they found men seek out risk much more often than women. And every one of you out there is thinking, uh, duh, does someone really have to do statistics to figure that one out? But the Lendron team did not just study normal risk-taking. They examined an altogether more enigmatic phenomenon called idiotic risk. Dennis Lendron says, quote, there is a qualitative difference between the risk of contact sports or adventure pursuits like parachuting. And then there's actual idiotic risk. We define idiotic risks as senseless risk where the apparent payoff is negligible or non-existent. And the outcome is often extremely negative and often final. Unquote. The Lendrons point out that to date there has been no systematic analysis of sex differences in idiotic risk-taking behavior. Keen to fill this conspicuous void in human knowledge, they set out to fix that. And, um, yeah, I have a feeling you already know the result of their statistical analysis. After rating the past 20 years of Darwin Award data and applying some simple statistics, they found males accounted for 88.7% of Darwin Award winners. The Lendrons say there are probably several potential flaws in their study, Quote, we understand there could be problems with our study's retrospective nature and how we gathered our data. 
or the fact that women may be more likely to nominate idiot men, or that there may be some selection bias within the Darwin Awards Committee itself. However, we do not feel that any of these factors would affect the results by very much. Unquote. All this only goes to show that humans in general are idiots. For those listeners who have pestered me several times over the last few months about why I make fun of scientists who are idiots, my only response is that they are fodder for greater idiocy than most because we simply expect more of them. Scientists are supposed to be educated, to be logical, to be careful, to keep perspective, and to have common sense. A lot of my colleagues out there who have outed themselves as idiots lack one or more of those traits. But I guess, based on the Lendrum study, it would be really interesting to question how many of those idiot scientists are male versus female. I suspect, as painful as it may be to contemplate, that we can probably guess what the answer is. Okay, the first real story of the night it pretty much blew my mind when I read it. I have been under general anesthetic a couple of times in my life for surgery and for colonoscopy. Both times I was freaked out by the utterly dead nature of being put under. It's not like sleeping at all. If you've ever actually experienced it, you just slide off into a death-like dreamless unconsciousness. The existential implications of this death-like state have bothered me for a number of years. We won't go into that, though. But the study I'm going to tell you about clarifies a huge number of questions of what happens to your brain under anesthetic. When people are administered anesthetic, they seem to lose consciousness, or at least they stop reacting to their environment. But is consciousness lost fully during anesthesia, or does consciousness persist in the brain but in an altered state? Until reading the story, I mean, since I've experienced it, I would have said there's no consciousness present at all. But this question has been explored in the research project entitled The Conscious Mind Integrating Subjective Phenomenology with Objective Measurements. It came out of the University of Turku in Finland, and they were studying neural mechanisms of human consciousness. And it came out uh, this July in the journal Anesthesiology. The study was headed by Dr. Harry Scheinen, and basically they examined the changes caused in the brain by anesthetics. And they monitored this with uh, electroencephalograms and also positron emission tomography. In the first part of the study, healthy voluntary participants were anesthetized either with dexmedetomatine or propofol. The drugs were administered with computer-driven target-controlled infusions until the subjects just barely lost responsiveness. And from that state, the subjects could be woken up with light shaking or a loud voice without changing the drug infusions. Immediately after the subjects regained responsiveness, they were asked whether they experienced anything during the anesthesia period. The study subjects were played Finnish sentences during the anesthesia. Half of those sentences ended in an expected word, and half in an unexpected word, such as, the night sky was filled with shimmering tomatoes. Normally, when a person is awake, the unexpected word causes a response in the EEG, which reflects how the brain processes the meaning of the sentence and the word. The researchers tested whether the subjects detected and understood words 
or entire sentences while under anesthesia. The responses in the EEG show that the brain cannot differentiate between normal and bizarre sentences when under anesthesia. When they used either drug, the expected words created a significant EEG response, meaning that the brain was trying to interpret the meaning of the words. However, after the participants woke from the anesthesia, they did not remember the sentences they had heard. The subjects were also played unpleasant sounds during anesthesia, and after they woke up, the sounds were played again, and surprisingly, they reacted faster to these sounds than to new sounds they had not heard before. They recognized the played sounds better than by chance, even though they could not actually recall them spontaneously. Shinen says, quote, We must conclude that the brain can process sounds and words during anesthesia, even though the subject does not recall it afterwards. This goes against the commonly held belief that anesthesia requires full loss of consciousness and disconnects the patient from the environment, unquote. So the study findings indicate that consciousness is not necessarily fully lost during anesthesia, even though the person is no longer reacting to the environment. However, dreamlike experiences and thoughts must still float in consciousness. The brain might still register speech and try to decipher words, but the person does not remember or understand them consciously, and the brain cannot construe full sentences from them. Scheinem finishes with this, quote, The state of consciousness induced by anesthetics seems similar to natural sleep. While sleeping, people dream and the brain observes the occurrences and stimuli in their environment subconsciously. However, the reason that dreaming and other stimuli are not remembered after anesthesia is that amnesia is induced by the anesthetics themselves, unquote. Next story. Okay, last flu season was a fiasco because the wrong flu strains were chosen to make the vaccine. And so many people got sick who otherwise would not have done so. This story is to make you feel a bit better for the future of flu vaccines, and that we may never even have flu seasons again if the University of Pennsylvania's plan works out. University of Pennsylvania researchers will start clinical trials of a universal mRNA flu vaccine within the next two years, on the back of promising results from tests in multiple animal models. Unlike traditional vaccines, that need to be reformulated every year to match mutated viral proteins and the different viral strains, as we've discussed, the new lipid nanoparticle, LNP, encapsulated mRNA vaccine triggers strong antibody responses to a part of the viral hemagglutinin, EHA protein, that doesn't mutate and is conserved across all viral strains. Experiments show that the mRNA-LNP vaccine protected mice against deadly doses of three different flu strains. The overall results suggest that it may be feasible to generate mRNA vaccines against flu that only need one or two repeat administrations over a lifetime rather than the current yearly shots that we need. The paper describing the animal work was just published in Nature Genetics by Dr. Drew Weissman. He claims, quote, This vaccine was able to do something that most other candidate flu vaccines have never been able to do. It was able to elicit protective responses 
against a conserved region that offers broad protection. If it works in humans even half as well as it does in mice, well then the sky's the limit. It could be something that everyone uses in the future to protect themselves from flu. Unquote. As we've discussed ad nauseum, current seasonal flu vaccines use viral proteins to elicit an antibody response that protects against future exposure to the virus. However, most flu virus vaccines trigger antibody responses against the ever-changing globular head region of the viral HA protein. This hemagglutinin and HA domain readily mutates within any one virus strain, while different flu strains that might be predominant from one flu season to the next will have different HA head structures. It means that flu vaccines have to be reformulated every year, based on predictions of the most likely strains that will be prevalent in the coming season. Again, ad nauseum. As an alternative approach to current vaccines, the UPenn team developed that mRNA vaccine that encodes the HA proteins. So following injection, the recipient's immune system, their cells take up the mRNAs and translate them into copies of the HA protein which then acts as a much better foil for flu infection and triggers a much stronger protective antibody response. Initial tests in mice show that a single injection of the UPenn team's candidate vaccine elicited strong antibody responses against both the readily mutated HA head, but also against the conserved stalk region of the HA protein, which doesn't really mutate very much and which is very little altered between strains. Weissman says, quote, When we first started testing this vaccine, we were blown away by the magnitude of the antibody response. The vaccine elicited similar high levels of HA stock-reactive antibodies when tested over 30 weeks in rabbits and ferrets and mice, unquote. Encouragingly, the vaccine protected mice against subsequent infections with different flu virus strains. Animals given just one injection of an mRNA vaccine encoding H1 virus subtype proteins survived otherwise lethal doses of the same H1 flu virus and a more distantly related H1 strain, while two doses were protective against an unrelated H5N1 flu strain. Weissman finishes with, quote, The next step is to test this in non-human primates and humans. It should also be possible to generate even more potent vaccines based on combinations of HA antigens. If we were to combine our vaccine approach with newly developed HA stock antigens, it would probably lead to a really good universal vaccine. Production of these new vaccines could also be faster, FDA-approved vaccines against new pandemic viruses take up to six months to be synthesized. On the contrary, once the genetic sequence of the target HA antigen is known, we can produce mRNA LNP vaccines within weeks. Unquote. Onward and upward. Dr. Jonathan Sedernays of Uppsala University just published a paper in the journal Science Advances that basically said, if you miss sleep, you will pay for it later. Just one night of sleep loss can trigger tissue-specific epigenetic gene expression and metabolic changes that are associated with the loss of lean muscle and the increase of fat. 
The research involving human volunteers, who were allowed either a good night's sleep or who were kept awake all night, hints at molecular mechanisms and disruption to the circadian clock that may underpin the previously identified link between chronic sleep loss, weight gain, metabolic syndrome, and type 2 diabetes. Saturday says, quote, Our research group was the first to demonstrate that acute sleep loss in and of itself results in epigenetic changes in the so-called clock genes within each tissue that regulate its circadian rhythm. Our new findings indicate that sleep loss causes tissue-specific changes to the degree of DNA methylation in genes spread throughout the human genome. Our parallel analysis of both muscle and adipose tissue further enabled us to reveal that DNA methylation is not regulated similarly in these tissues in response to acute sleep loss, unquote. The researchers acknowledged that their study involved just 15 healthy young males, and they only evaluated the effects of a single night's sleep loss. Further studies will be needed to see if the effects of short-term sleep loss are recapitulated after chronic sleep deprivation in more diverse groups of people, including younger and older men and women of different ethnicities. Whether the effects can be reversed by better sleep also remains to be seen. Saturday's notes, quote, It will be interesting to investigate to what extent one or more nights of recovery sleep can normalize the metabolic changes that we observe at the tissue level as a result of sleep loss. Diet and exercise are factors that can also alter DNA methylation, and these factors can thus possibly be used to counteract adverse metabolic effects of sleep loss, unquote. Okay, so the next story just annoyed the blazes out of me as being so silly I cannot even believe it was published. If this was not published in an actual science journal, and a relatively well-known one, I would have nominated the authors for Idiot Scientists of the Month. But you decide. First, a bit of background on experimental design. To avoid biased results in experiments, especially in dealing with humans, doctors working with patients and experimental treatments have used two different types of experimental designs, and you may have heard of these. Uh, the first are called blind studies. These are studies in which none of the treated patients know what treatment they're getting. This is to avoid problems with the placebo effect. Remember, the placebo effect is when patients who get a non-functional treatment get better. So the second type of medical study is a double-blind study. This is designed not only to avoid the placebo effect, but to avoid bias on the part of the researchers as well. In a double-blind study, neither the researcher nor the patient knows what treatment they are getting until the end. Well, the experimenters in the next story used neither type of design, and you judge for yourself if any of this makes any sense. The story comes out of the lab of Dr. Vanya Apkarian of Northwestern University Medical School, and it must be good science because it was published in Nature Communications this month. Right? Sure? Right? Well... Apkarian's team has demonstrated that it is possible to predict if a patient will respond to placebo sugar pills for chronic pain based on their brain's anatomy and psychology. This could lead to being commonplace for doctors to prescribe sugar pills for people 
Now, this echoes my complaints of last month of one of the stories, which you may remember. So, sugar pills as painkillers. Wait, is this a punchline to a joke? No, seriously. Well, let me explain. Abkarian says that a person's biology will respond to the placebo whether they know what it is or not, meaning there is no need to trick a patient into believing that they have been given an active drug. Abkarian says, quote, certain brains are already tuned to respond to placebos. They have the appropriate psychology and biology that puts them in a cognitive state that as soon as you say, this may make your pain better, well, their pain becomes better. Unquote. In order to investigate this, the team randomly split 60 chronic back patients into two groups. In one group, they were assigned a placebo, and those in the other group were assigned nothing. Already, you see a problem. Both treatment groups knew exactly what they were getting. Nothing, or, well, nothing. How do you justify the results of a study in which you actually have no real controls? But what controls do you need when you test if a sugar pill can kill pain? Do you administer actual painkillers to one group? Do you give another group two sugar pills? Do you lie to a group and tell them that the sugar pills will actually make them sick? How do you actually perform a study as inane as this? Anyway, the results, well, those whose pain decreased as a result of the placebo sugar pill had similar brain anatomies and psychological traits, according to Apkarian. The right side of their brain was larger than their left, and they were emotionally self-aware and sensitive to painful situations. Apkarian says, quote, Our research could not only reduce health care costs if sugar pills are to be prescribed, but also lead to a reduction of side effects by the prescription of non-active drugs. Also, in the future, drug trials could be optimized by the elimination of the placebo effect and the need to recruit fewer people by identifying people prone to this reaction, unquote. Uh, yeah, and you're also going to give them diabetes, too, with all those sugar pills. I don't know. This just seems so sad to me. So, let's do the last story of the night here. As usual, I saved the most controversial and titillating story for last. This one is definitely PG-13, so if you're listening with kids, uh, you may want to just skip ahead a few minutes to the ending if you're listening to the Starship Sofa. So as a geneticist, I constantly come up against the question of nature versus nurture in both the classroom and my own work. The question always arises of what part does the environment play, if any, for any particular genetic trait. My first lecture at Introductory Genetics is a long explanation of how two organisms can have exactly the same genetic makeup, twins, genetic twins, and yet have very different phenotypes, that is, traits, if they are raised under different environmental conditions. This is always in the background whenever you're talking about genetics, and it can become very controversial when you're talking about humans. For example, there are camps that insist that homosexuality is a learned trait versus one that is hardwired by genetics. Of course, there are others who insist the exact opposite is true. The reason this is so controversial is because it has to do with human behavior. 
And the genetics of behavior are some of the most complex that exist. And no matter what we discover in animals, it's never entirely clear that what we're finding in the animals can be extended to humans. Humans are far more complex than animals will ever be. How complex? Well, a new study out of Ohio State University suggests that the immune system may actually have an effect on sexual behavior in the developing brain. No one has ever considered the immune system to be a factor in neural development before. So this pretty much changes everything. The study was published by Dr. Katherine Lentz last month in the Journal of Neuroscience in an article entitled, Mass Cells in the Developing Brain Determine Adult Sexual Behavior. The study shows that immune cells appear to play an important role in determining whether an animal's sexual behavior will be more typical of a male or a female. To better understand the role of the mast cells in sexual behavior, Lentz's team silenced the mast cells in male fetal rats and then observed the rat's development later in life. Mast cells are those immune tissues that you normally associate with allergies because they release histamine. At any rate, the altered male rats were paired with females that were receptive to mating and observed to determine whether the males sexually pursued the females. Interestingly, the experimental males were far less interested in the female rats than typical males, and they indeed acted almost like females. Moreover, the researchers also manipulated female newborn rats, activating the mast cells with a stimulating chemical. And as adults, they apparently acted like males. At this point, you're all going, what? Is, is that all it takes? Now, Lentz says, quote, It's fascinating to watch because these masculine females don't have the hardwire to engage in male reproductive behavior, but you wouldn't know it from the way they act. They appear to be strongly motivated to try to engage in male sexual behavior with other females, unquote. Lenz found that the hormone estradiol, which plays a significant role in the development of masculine traits in rats, activates mast cells in the brain and that those mast cells drive the animal's sexual development. The article states that newborn male rats had greater numbers and more activated mast cells in the preoptic area, a brain region essential for male copulatory behavior than female littermates during the critical period for sexual differentiation. Lenz believes that if human development mirrors what was seen in this animal study, it's possible that relatively minor influences, such as an allergic reaction, an injury, or even inflammation during pregnancy, could steer sexual behavior development in offspring. He thinks it's even conceivable that taking antihistamines or pain relievers during pregnancy could play a role. Furthermore, this discovery could help explain risks for psychiatric and neurological disorders that are more common in males, including autism. Lenz remarks, quote, These mast cells in the brain appear crucial for lifelong brain development, even though there are relatively few of them. This should really open our eyes to the potential role of different immune cells in the human brain. There's so much we don't know, and we need to pay attention to all the cells of the brain and how they talk to each other, unquote. 
What's particularly interesting here is that previous neurogenetic work by researchers uncovered that microglial development directs sexual behavior. Amazingly, in this new study, Lentz found that mast cells activate microglia. Lentz finishes with, quote, This new mast cell discovery is one of those accidents of science. Another researcher was conducting some unrelated work on sex differences in gene expression and noticed that there appeared to be some differences in mast cell genes depending on whether the brains were from a male or female. We just followed up on that study, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. Please don't complain there were only biology stories this month. Don't miss out on your sleep. Please don't take idiotic risks. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. What can I say, James? What can I say that people haven't said already about you? Jim, thank you so much, lad. Honestly, thank you so much indeed. So... That is the end of the show. We come to the end of 5-6. No, it's not. It's 5-5-6. Five, five, Jumping ahead of myself there. Hope you enjoyed it. You don't do call again next week. That would be fantastic. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say So far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. 
I'll get out there. 